Welcome into this Five Clubs Conversation. I'm Gary Williams. When you get a chance to talk to somebody who's won a ton of major championships, you get excited. And that's one part of it. But the other part of the conversation I'm getting ready to have is because he's interesting. He's curious. He's a righteous dude. I'm talking about the eight-time major champion, Tom Watson. His thoughts on his life in the game and his journey in life in general. That's coming up right now. Today's Five Clubs conversation is brought to you by Golf Pride. Golf Pride knows that a grip isn't only a grip. It's the one piece of equipment in your hands on every single shot. You might not know it, but it has a huge impact on your game. In fact, Golf Pride recently conducted a first-of-its-kind study showing the impact of worn versus new grips. It showed that on average, a focused group of adept golfers gained an extra two yards of carry when they played with new grips. So what are you waiting for? Refresh your grips. Refresh your game. Visit GolfPride.com today to learn more. Golf Pride. Respect the grip. And with that, we welcome in the eight-time major champion, Tom Watson. Tom, how are you feeling? <laughs> well, I'm feeling all right. I had a little problem uh, last November turning over in a go-kart, stuck my arm out and just uh, messed up my shoulder really badly. I had to have it replaced and um, uh, had some hand issues as well where I had an op operation. So right now, I'm not a, I can't swing the golf club very well, but it's getting a little bit better. And uh, so I'm, uh, things are looking up. Well, good. You mentioned before we got started, you're taking the grandkids out to the air show uh, this, this weekend with the Blue Angels coming into town near where your farm is. You know, the th you are you are somebody who always wants to be engaged in something, whether it's your mind or in a physical sense. Um, how has the last year been for you? Has it been challenging for you mentally to not be able to do maybe some of the things that you're inclined to want to do? Well, I, it it has. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a golfer, Gary. I mean, without me being able to play golf, uh, there's a you know there's a uh, you know there's a, there's a big hole in my life, I guess you might say, that I can't go out and, and do what I've always done. Uh, but I, you know, I made a decision about seven years ago to uh, change directions in my life as far as what I'd like to do. Uh, I, all those years I traveled on the tour, hotels, restaurants, playing professional golf, going to golf tournaments, trying to be the best I, golfer I possibly could be. And I finally realized that uh, I got to the point where I realized I didn't have enough tools in the toolbox to be able to compete. Uh, and I didn't want to just continue to play golf uh, and go out and shoot 78s and 75s and 80s uh, when they're, uh, uh, on the professional uh, senior tour or our PGA Tour champions. That just didn't <laughs> – that, that wasn't going to get it for me. So I made the decision to – Changed directions. My wife, uh, you know, at that time was really becoming very good in in a discipline called uh, cutting, uh, and it involves cutting horses. 
And so I decided that I was going to try to learn how to be a cutting horse competitor. And so I started seven years ago and here I am today with, with uh, a whole bunch of horses and uh, spending my kids inheritance. Yes. <laughs> but uh, doing some, doing something that, uh, uh, my wife inspired me to do, and, and uh, I, I, I got a passion for, and so that uh, that it's going to take it's going to take me off. Literally, I'm going to ride off into the sunset. Tom, the the thing that you're talking about when Hillary, I think it was the early 2000s when when she started doing this competitively. Maybe she was doing it before, but I was just looking looking oh, back yeah. on some things. And, and there's some quotes I was looking at from you regarding you watching this. And you said that, that you, a couple things about the idea or the experience of cutting. You said experience is essential and that you'd had enough of watching that it was time for you to literally get in the ring and, and do this. And there are things about this I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on because it's an exercise that requires judgment from others. And you've been doing something your whole life where the, the judge is a pencil and it's, it's, it's you putting a number in a box and mm -hmm. it doesn't matter right. how you get from, from A to B, but that's there to me, fundamentally, Tom, there's a big difference between you figuring out how to, how to get a ball in a hole and you doing something on a horse where others are then deciding how good you were at it. Was that challenging? That's, well, you know, Gary, that's very profound that you say that, uh, People ask me, what, what is the difference between playing professional golf and being in the show pen uh, on a cutting the horse and competing uh, against the cattle? And I say it's, inf you know, it's, it, it's a lot more variables involved with cutting than there is with golf. Uh, you know, people don't know in this interview, they don't know about cutting, but basically it, it's you on the back of a horse trying to separate a cow out of a herd very slowly so you don't disturb or scare the herd or scare the cow that you're separating. And then once you have it separated, keep that cow from getting back into the herd, which that cow wants to do in the worst way. And then it gets exciting. And you go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and uh, it gets fast and furious. And that's the rush that I love about cutting. But that's a there are variables involved here. You have the cow. You don't know what the cow is going to do. You have uh, the horse. The horse is trained to do that, but you have to help the horse. You have to guide the horse many times with your feet. Uh, then you have uh, the judges. You don't know how the judges are going to score you. Uh, so you have those variables there, and you compare that to golf. You know the way I look at golf. You know the, the variables in golf are. The wind, the lie, and the wind. Uh, those are the two variables you have to deal with when hitting, you know, when you're playing golf. And, uh, you know, I think you can do it. You can learn kind of how to judge that. And in cutting, you can't control the cow and you can't control the judges. The, um, you know, I, I like all sports, but I am challenged by some things that include judges. So I'm going to ask you because I don't know I don't know the culture of of cutting. Like when I watch gymnastics or I watch you know platform yeah. diving in the Olympics, um, 
are the judges in this and as somebody who has become, you know, more than competent at this, do you feel like when you're done, have you ever felt wronged by a judge like, God, that that is not reflective of my performance? Do you feel like they're really good at what they do in terms of judging performance? Uh, for the most part, yes, Gary, but there are, there are times when you feel as if uh, you had a better performance than you were given by the judges. And there have been times where uh, I think the judges have been over generous with uh, scoring. You know, in the scoring pattern, you've got, you've got, they score between 60 and 80, and they start you at 70. And if you do well, you get a 71, two, three, four, five, six. I've only gotten one six in my life. Uh, and, and, but I've got plenty of 60s. That's the lowest score or zeros. That's when you lose a cow, the cow gets around you. And you have to get out of the ring, uh, but you know the, the the issue of of fairness in the judges is different. I mean, not to get too complicated about this, but the the judges in cutting and I've always have had contention with my trainer because he's a judge. He's a he's a national judge, Gavin Jordan. I said, Gavin, why don't you as a trainer look at that ride and give it the true score that it is he said you don't you can't do that you have to place the ride in that particular 15 person ride to who did the best ride to the second to the third you give them the score appropriately for that not the exact score that uh you think the ride was say say you had a ride that uh after you know, in, in the early goings, it was uh, uh, a 75. Well, somebody comes in and really lights it up, uh, and uh, you, you give that person a 76. But then there's another person that comes on that really lights it up again. Now, where do you place that person in the order? That's, the, that's what judges have to learn to do. And it's not the exact score that's placing that rider in the order that they that that judge thinks that it is in that in that uh, fifteen person set. Sorry to get so complicated. No, no, but, no but it's that's interesting. It no, I, I stuff like this. You know, look, this has become a, a passion of yours. You described you know, kind of your role that it's like being a sheepdog, and that the the, the cow is yeah. frightened, and the cow, as you just said a, a couple minutes ago. Is in, I mean, their intuition, they want to be back in the herd. Is there anything about this that, that you're, you're trying to care for something that is, that's been displaced? Is that saying something about you? I'm not trying to psychoanalyze you, but is there something about that? Well, uh, not to avoid the answer to the question, but I tell you, cutting is an actual ranch discipline. It, it evolved from, having to go into the herd uh, before the game was ever invented, go into the herd with your horse to separate a cow out of that herd who is sick so you can go administer uh, uh, to a sickness. And you learn how to do that. You don't, I mean, on your horse, you go into the herd very quietly not to disturb the herd because if you go in there running like this, that herd just explodes, it just goes like that, and you lose control. You know, you go in there and you separate that cow very softly away from the herd. And uh, that, you know, that's that's the ranch discipline. It goes, 
it goes back to the beginning of uh, of cattle and, and horses. Uh, so it's uh, you know it's it's a funny it's a funny game, Gary, because the one thing that I didn't tell you what you do in this game is once you separate the cow from the herd, you use your reins to do it. You know, you use your reins to guide, you know, you know, in the bridle, the, the horse to get in the right position. You and you work that cow out of the herd. Once you separate that cow from the herd, you have to put the reins down. You wow. can't use the reins anymore to control the cow once it's separated from the herd. So now it's you, your body, your feet to help guide that, that horse and that training of that horse that that horse knows to keep level, keep on the straight line back and forth like this, not go up the pen or fall back into their herd like this. So I'm getting too technical. I know for, for most people watching this, but it's, it's, uh, it's what I love to do. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it's different than golf. As I said, there are a lot more variables involved with this. Uh, one of the things you do in this is uh, before you go into the in, into your class in your set, they bring the whole herd in, and it's never been ridden. They've never been used before as far as cutting, so they don't know what's going on here. And so you have what they call a settler, a, a person on a horse that goes in the herd, herd and and walks through sometimes runs a little bit to get the cows used to a rider during that time you as the competitor are watching that herd and trying to identify as many cattle in that herd as possible by their markings and so that when you go into the herd uh the uh you go into the corner and your your trainer or your your person helping you said take that red mott on the right-hand side of there, work it out, and when it gets in a good position, separate that one. So you'll learn, you'll learn you know, each, each herd uh, you know, and, and the individual cows in that herd. That's part of the game. Right. Uh, last thing on this, uh, I think it, this was a couple years ago. You had a horse, one alley cat. Is that still your go-to horse? Is that horse still in the rotation? Absolutely. He's coming up to Kansas City this coming uh, – and next week he's coming up to Kansas City. I'll be riding him in the American Royal Horse and Livestock Show. That's uh, they fantastic. have a cutting event, which is uh, named after my, my, my wonderful wife, Hillary, who's passed away. It's the it's you know, Hillary Watson Memorial Cutting Horse Show. That's fantastic. You know, something else that is a passion of yours, it's a newer passion, uh, newer even than cutting, is Watson Lynx. And I, I want to talk about this because, Tom, I I've been lucky enough over the last two years to, to be involved in something that's also about access for younger people in the game of golf. But, but the genesis of this for you goes all the way back to your young life that was different mm -hmm. from the lives of these kids that you're trying to engage in the game of golf. You had good fortune with your dad to play golf at Kansas City Country Club. Your dad, Ray, he was a, a good player. And yeah, we had, a, we had a golf course. Uh, my dad belonged to a golf club. Yep. And, and I could play that golf club as a kid. Uh, my dad taught me the game there, taught me how to you know, first lesson, I remember, this is the grip, son. Turn your back to the target, and when you get and when you go through, finish with your belly button finished into the hole. Those, that's the lesson he taught me. You know, grip, keep my head still, turn my back to the target, belly button to the hole. That was it. And I was six years old. I had cut down hickory shaft and five iron, I think. 
And from there, but I had, you know, I could be dropped off there and I could go out and play by myself. You had access. Or access, right. And, and then my dad would come home from the office and, and sometimes he said, son, you want to go play three holes? And this is when I was a little kid. Yeah, I was seven, eight years old. Yeah, dad, let's go. And uh, that, you know, my dad had a passion for the game. And, you know, and it very simply, I, I, you know, I got that passion from my father. And that's what we're trying to do in Watson Links, Gary. What we have, Watson Links, very simply, is a mentorship program that mentors sign up and kids sign up to go play nine holes free at 10 different golf courses here in Kansas City. And they sign up and the kids go out, they play golf, nine holes with the mentors. We've had nothing, 100% approval of this program with the mentors and the kids. They're having a great time. But the thing I wanted to do was I wanted a bridge between the first tee program mm -hmm. and real golf. Because the first tee program basically gets the kids started. To, you know, they learn how to swing the golf club. But sadly, they don't have a place to go play golf, a lot of them. And so and they, they get up for maybe 9, 10, and 11 years old. You know, they go. It's kind of a summer camp for them. Yeah, they learn how to play golf, but there's no place to go. So this is the bridge. This is where these kids now can sign up through uh, kcfirsttee.org. Yep. They go to the website. There's a Watson Links link right there. They press on that, and there's immediately goes to two sign-up lists. One for the kids to sign up with all the dates and the courses, and the other is mentor sign up with all the dates and the courses. And the mentors are, are, are vetted. They go through safe sport. Uh, so it's like any youth program with adults involved. Safe sport takes care of that. Uh, we've had an absolutely wonderful, wonderful uh, run here in Kansas City. But more importantly, Gary, we have had national interest. We have 13 different uh, uh, organizations around the country, one of which has already instituted Watson Links into their program. Uh, they want they want to do these programs with, with in their community. Some are first tee programs, some are not. And my ultimate goal here, and I'm just letting the cat out of the bag here. I want the national first tee organization, Greg McLaughlin, yep. and the national first tee, to take this under the wing and promote this through their their local chapters all around the country because this is easy. It's easy to to run. We're create we're creating an app right now, which takes the burden off the person who runs this program. With all the sign up times, the communications to the parents, uh, the communications to the golf course, communication with the kids. There's we're creating an app, and you know, we're we're trying to get this app up and running for next year, uh, that we can export out to all these different organizations that want this Watson Links program. So they can run this program very easily themselves. We do not run the programs uh, other than our local program. We export this to programs that will run it themselves. And uh, I just think, again, I go back to what you first said. It's very, you know, my dad took me on the golf course. He played golf with me. I learned to love the game because of that. We're doing the same thing here with mentors and kids.
Tom, I, I was lucky enough to have a similar experience as you did as a kid. And my dad was a member of a club, a club where you won a senior PGA. I grew up in Ridgewood, New Jersey. My parents were mm. members at Ridgewood Country Club. I, I, and for whatever reason, as a frivolous kid, I, I knew I was lucky. Like, I didn't take it for granted. Um, and there are a couple of things about what you're doing. I, I believe that access is inspirational. Whatever, whatever your interest might be, if you're a scientist or, or you're a ballerina or if you're a golfer and, and getting access to places that turn on those interests, then the other part is the, the key part to me is the mentorship. The, the interfacing that these kids can have with individuals that might change their trajectory of their lives and the advocacy that they may get from these mentors, Tom, to me, that's the rub. That's everything. Um, and from what I understand, like the, the interest level and the participation, you guys up like 400% year over year? Well, I, I don't know the percentage, Gary, but uh, my goal this year was to, was to have 200 individual kids uh, work the program. And we'll, we're, we're well over that now. In, in August, our program is extending to uh, to the middle of uh, October, which is a stretch, I think. And we're considering pulling back the program as far as uh, the time uh, starting in, in May and ending in uh, the first part of September for next year. Uh, but we're going to see how how it continues, you know, you know in, in September and October with school. You know, you know we're going to see how, if there's a significant drop off or maybe just a minor drop off we don't know is this the first full year we've had of the program so yep you know this program has uh again it goes back to inspiring the kids to play mm. uh the kids hey they looked at this watson links that hey i can go play free i can play nine holes one thing we haven't really discussed gary is that and where we have really haven't uh, focused our attention in Kansas City here? Why don't we go to the private clubs here? All these the, the courses that we have right now are all public. We pay we uh, my foundation helps pay for the starting time, you know, right. the tee times. Why don't we go to the private clubs and see if we can inspire uh, the a member or two at a private club to take three kids on their own on their golf course and play golf with them. And uh, I, I think there's a great opportunity there. there. Is. I think there's a wonderful opportunity there. I know there, there, there are members of clubs, private clubs, who would you know, more than happy do this. They'd love to do this. And and you know we we have different you know we have different abilities for these kids. Some kids are just new, pretty new, but have had the basic fundamental skills. We take those and we 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 suggest that they go to the par three courses. So the courses aren't too long for them. Uh, or if, if we do have those, they'll move up. They, the mentor will move them up to tees, you know, say a hundred yards from the hole or the, from the green. So this is where we're going to play from in this hole. You know, they're smart enough to do that. So we've got, uh, you know, you know, we've got a big opportunity to expand this to the private clubs, but more importantly, I hope we can expand this program nationally and, uh, Hey, if, hey, Papa First Tee, if you are listening, uh, we would really love your support on this thing. And, and we can give you all the data, all the details of how it works here and how it ties in with our First Tee here 
Ann Spivak, uh, Rachel Panko, uh, the, these the two ladies who run who run this program here in Kansas City. They can give you all sorts of information. This is information that we're we are creating a, a real extensive and, and comprehensive package uh, to send around uh, organizations around the country who want to do this. Yeah, the, Tom, I think the time is the time is now for these private clubs. I, I feel that over the last you know five years, I, I do think that even prior to that. I think drive, chip, and putt was an impetus, the sense of responsibility that it can't just be about us and our little fiefdoms and these forbidden cities. I, I, I look at regional sites for the drive, chip, and putt. These are major championship venues. And I understand they're not playing the golf course. They're hitting shots on, on the range. But I, I do sense that the private sector is coming around to, to mm-hmm. hey, we have a responsibility here, whether it's, whether it's places that are ingrained in communities like Kansas City or these outposts that are these great places that are destination private enclaves to say, you know what, we've, we've put up residency in this area. Let's give something to this community beyond the gate that we're building. I, I, I think the time is now for all of this, Tom. Let me put it this way. You... you- you talked about how the kids uh, learn the game with passion from a, a mentor. You know, I started programs here in Kansas City uh, to get kids involved with the game because of one thing. One thing, the caddy programs. When I grew up, I was a caddy. So was I. We had we had kids, you know, I, I caddied the Kansas City Country Club, but we had kids from all, all around coming over there who weren't members. They weren't uh, members' kids, and they, they had the opportunity to learn uh, from a mentor. Uh, my dad used to, you know, when he when he played here, he always told the pro Paul Weiler or Stan Thurston, give me the newest caddy you've got. I'll teach him how to caddy. Well, you know, you teach the kid how to caddy, that kid all of a sudden becomes interested in the game of golf. Uh, let's play the game of golf. And, you know, Stan was very good with the caddies. He would teach him. And he get, you know, on Mondays, clubs closed, guys go play. That was a program. You know, that's how kids from outside the these Absolutely. little feet, they, could call it, they, had, they got the opportunity to play golf. This program does the same thing. It gets kids to start the game. You know, I want to get them to the start of the game with the first tee. And then from the first tee, I want to extend into the Watson Lynx program where they take a, they, a mentor takes them out on the golf course and plays golf with them. Uh, that's, you know, it, boy, it just makes com- it's just common sense, Gary. It works. It, it, and my foundation is my golf foundation is right at the top of the, uh, of, of, of the first page. They say these foundations are there to create lifetime golfers without caddies. We didn't have that. We didn't have that, that, uh, that pipeline of kids from all walks of life to be able to learn how to play golf with the, with the first tee and, and Watson links, we do. Um, and, and by the way, as you mentioned, I know that you're expanding to some other cities next year. Anybody who's involved with the first tee chapter anywhere in this country, uh, you can inquire about this to, to possibly implement it uh, through your own chapter, wherever it is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to certainly talk to the folks here in Charlotte uh, that has a terrific chapter. Raleigh, North Carolina's Gil Hans is building a little short course pro bono uh, for that new chapter over there. 
and again, give out the, the website again one more time, Tom, for people who want to inquire and find out more. Why don't they go to uh, uh, firsttkc.org, okay. firsttkc.org, and go, go to that website. You'll see Watson links underneath the, the header. Uh, click and just push that. And you'll see how you'll see how it works. The mentorship program, uh, I'm sorry, the mentor program and the and the kids sign up. If anybody else wants anything more, uh, please inquire at the first dot org and we can get the information to them. Uh, as I said, we have a very comprehensive uh, uh, pro forma, if you will, of how our operation works uh, and uh if you're really if you're really interested to see it, we can we can certainly can send it to you. Very good. Um, I, I've always thought that that the best opinions were the the most well informed opinions. You you made a decision in the early part of the summer uh, to send an open letter to Jay Monahan, and what I found most effective about the letter, Tom, was that it wasn't it wasn't in the form of condemnation. It was it was an inquiry. It was it was a series of questions asking you know, with respect to certain things that you wanted to be more well-informed on, which is probably the, exactly, exactly the, the entire membership. How, how much, if any trepidation did you have about, about penning that letter? I had none. Uh, this was a complete departure of, a, of what I thought the tour, where I thought the tour should go. And the and the sad thing about it, Gary, is that the question the questions in that letter have not been answered, not a single one. We're waiting for the answers, and I can't comment on it until we get the answers. The um, one of the things that that you said at the outset of the letter was that there was an absence of due process. If it's a member-run organization, how in the world could that happen? Is is it's not member-run if you don't have. Uh, you don't control the board, and now they do. Tiger Woods has now been added to the board, and now there's a, a voting majority of the PGA Tour players on the board. If we'll see what happens, yeah, we'll it, see what happens. Do, do you do, do you think Tiger being activated in this way? Are you encouraged by that? I think that the the board uh, needed a a restructuring that the players had voting. Uh, they had uh, voting power because this is a player's organization. And it seemed as if, you know, it didn't seem as if this, this organization went, you know, went outside of its, uh, of its, of the due process. As you said, the process wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't transparent at all. There were no players involved in the negotiations with PIF and Yasser. That needed to be. And that, you know, that was a that was a huge mistake, I think. And I think the players thought so, too. Don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, from yeah, everything involved in the process, a single player. Well, I don't care what but the, a single player needed to be involved with that, at least because we are a players organization. Right. Yes. We have people making decisions that that really shape the future of professional of you know, PGA Tour professional golf. And without player participation in those decisions, uh, they're going the wrong direction. Tom, one of the things that, that I've always thought specifically to you was this sense of, you know, taking responsibility for your own actions down to the behavior of, 
hitting a poor shot and not looking away, consuming that poor shot. And that <laughs> I remember John Cook telling me a story the first time he played with you that you, you hit a poor tee shot and you just stared it down. And he looked at Bruce Edwards and he's like, what is he doing? And he said, that's his punishment. And he'll get over it by the time he gets to his ball. That, 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 you, that, that taking ownership of stuff. And the reason I bring that up is that, that poor play has consequences. It has consequences if the shot results in a, in a bad lie. Um, and poor play results in missed cuts. Do you think that, that the best players in the world playing some of them, if not the bulk of their events in the absence of a cut, is fundamental to elite championship golf? Well, I'm like Tiger and a lot of other pros. It said the cut is, has always been to me uh, you know, why the tour is very, very competitive. When I first got on the tour, Gary, the most important thing for me to do when I got on the tour was to make a cut. And you, do you know why? Oh, yeah. So you would avoid having to play Monday. Well, people don't understand that. If I made the cut, I was in the next tournament. Yep. I didn't have to go to Monday qualifying to try to get into the next tournament. So there was a lot of pressure to make that cut. That was, I think that pressure in itself uh, makes you a better golfer. They, um, they have announced that, that Jack's event, Arnold's event, Tiger's event, and the players of this signature series will include cuts. But I, I you know, I look at some good, of you. Good. Before they weren't, they changed their policy, correct? Yes. They changed their policy. They were going to compute. And why did that Why did that occur, Gary? Do you know why? Because what there pressure? were – well, I'll tell you where the pressure came from because Jack made it clear that he wanted to cut in his event, and so did Tiger. And, and speaking on right. behalf of the other guys you knew well, Arnold Palmer, he'd want to cut. And the problem right there, Gary, is that they didn't vet that out before they made the decision to do that, the tour. And why? Because they didn't have a player involvement in making that decision. No, they did not. And now they do. And I, I, I just, Tom, I, I'm looking at, you know, first of all, all your every win on the PGA Tour is a quality win. But, like, I can't imagine the Western Open without a cut or, or Harbor Town, a memorial where you won twice. Yeah. Um, you know, these events to me, I, t Tom, the thing that I have always admired about people who play golf the way that, that you did is that, you know what, you, you, you played in an unusual way, but the fact is you accepted the consequences of not playing well enough and you pulled up your bootstraps and you, and you worked on getting better. Um, and I just, I, I think that the absence of, of the consequence of not being good enough through 36 holes um, is essential. The other thing I want to ask you is about the size of fields. The idea that these guys are going to reduce fields to 70 players. Are you a, are, does that sit with you well? This is the deepest tour in the world. We're getting deep into this thing, Gary. I, I really don't want to go there. Okay. Let's put it this way. When I first got in the tour, if you made it into the top 60 money winners for, the, for, for that whole year, you were exempt into the next year. So when you began that year in January, your goal was to make enough money to be in the top 60. I, when I first started the tour, that was my goal, make the top 60. First year, I didn't. And the second year, I did. And the starting the third year and the fourth year, 
the third year, you know, that's all I was thinking about, making the top 60, making enough money to get in the top 60. The fourth year, the same way. And by the time it was the fourth year, I had my, in 1977, actually, it was my fifth year, I had my breakout year. And I, I won, I don't know, five, six tournaments, something like that, Masters in the Open Championship. But the next year, in January, what was my major concern? Making the top 60. I didn't, you know, I had a great year in 77, <laughs> but when I started in, in January of 78, I was thinking of one thing. I wonder if I can make enough money to, you know, to, to be exempt for the following year. That was my goal. Then they changed it to the top 125 uh, money winners were exempt to the following year and made it a lot easier. So you didn't have to think about that on, on that basis. And now they've got, you know, now they've, you know, the tour said, we're going to have a bunch of no cut tournaments. And, you know, this, this tour has expanded greatly into areas where I think uh, it, it, it it basically separates the players who uh, make it into that top level, the make it in that top 50 from those players who are not in that top 50. And that's the danger I see uh, with uh, what has come down the pike as far as what they're planning on doing for 2024. I really have, a, I really have an issue with that. I think that the, uh, the, the, the tour board now comprised of, a majority of tour players need to they need to address that and see okay do we have tournaments with no cuts do we have reduced fields what's the, what's the best product that we can put out there for the tour uh, and the, the players but also the sponsors and also television they have to consider all that and uh, I think they you know they didn't think that out properly I think that they uh, with the Majority in the, of the players and the player you know, the policy board now they will. The um, you mentioned seventy seven. That was the first year that you were on a Ryder Cup team, and it's Tom. It's hard to fathom that that you were the last captain to win on the road. Thirty years. It's it's <laughs> it's it's, it's it, and I get it. It's only you only have an opportunity once every four years. It's not like they've been going over there every year for thirty years. But nonetheless, it's it's. Do you have any overarching theme or theory as to why that's been the way it's been? Well, without a doubt, you have, the Europeans have a home course advantage. They have a lot stronger uh, uh, fan support than we do here. We we have good fan support here in in the U.S., but when it's in Europe, I mean, it's uh, it's huge. Their their fan support over there is, is big, and I, I get a kick out of them because uh, when I was uh, Ryder Cup captain in 2014 on the first tee, going to watch all my players tee off there, they had a group of guys that had, <laughs> and they're all dressed up and and in their outfits there, and they're singing different songs that they had they had comprised, you know, that, that, and wonderful and funny songs, you know, not not mean. But uh, you know, in support of their players, and they're up there singing uh, at the stands at the back of the first tee. That's the type of support that you get uh, over in Europe, and I, you know, that's and I think that gives the the, the team an advantage. 
the, Tom, in 77, that was the last year before they included continental European players on the side. They did it in 79 at the Greenbrier. From 77, and you, 81, the team you guys had in 81 is arguably the greatest Ryder Cup team ever. I think Bruce Litsky is the only guy on that team who didn't win a major, at least one major, and he was a great player. Um, what changed? Obviously, the talent level and the depth and, the, and some of these guys by 93, but, but, but the atmosphere in the edge, was there a, a noticeable edge from 77 and 93 that had been instituted as far as they had become more competitive, they could trade punches. What to you had changed the most from, from that 16-year window from 77 to 93? Very simple, Seve. Seve is a hell of a leader and an inspirational leader. Uh, Seve, you had, you know, had some really good players on their team. I mean, they... Uh, you, you, you go down the list, you know, from Sandy Lyle to Jose Maria to, uh, you know, Who's you go right now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they had the guns and, you know, did we have the guns? I think some of some of our teams are weaker than their teams going in there without a doubt. They, they had better they, they, on paper. They were better players. And that, you know, the, the U S always thought that we were the better players because we had, you know, we're the big dog, right? But it wasn't the case when Sebi came along and the Europeans uh, really were, uh, they had a lot of strong players that, uh, you know, they played, you know, and they, uh, you know, they took us to the woodshed, you know, several times. They especially did. Over the it, Tom, the 93 team, I, first of all, um, you know, at this point, it had become a big deal in this country. It was, I mean, it was in the eighties. It was on a tape delay. I mean, you or you, right. you'd have to, I mean, it was, it was, it was such a modest audience by 93 people were getting up in the middle of the night and, and watching matches from the Belfry that, that team, you had four rookies on that team. Davis love was a rookie. Lee Jansen had won the U S open. John cook uh, was his lone Ryder cup, Jim Gallagher, jr. But you added your captain's picks were Ray Floyd, who was 51 years old, and Lanny Watkins, who was 43, and they were playing in their eighth Ryder Cups. Do you remember your decision-making that went into picking Ray, who had been the captain two sure, years before? Sure. It was, uh, and I told, I told the players this, a lot of the players who were on the cut line, basically just outside uh, the cut line, weren't playing well, Gary. They had a lousy summer. They weren't playing well. I want to go with horses that are running well. And, uh, and I didn't have much choice other than to take the best experienced, toughest competitor that I knew of. And, and there, you know, two of them were Ray Floyd and Lanny Watkins. Uh, and, and Ray, by the way, won his singles match against Homer Jose Mario Lathabal, um, which was great. I, I do want to ask you a couple other things about 93. Freddie Couples, who was absolutely one of the best players in the world, he came into Sunday. He was 0-3-1. He played every session, and you put him out first in singles. Do you remember why? What was the motivation of sending him out as your lead dog? Well, uh, yeah. I wanted him uh, you know, to get the team on. I, I wanted I wanted to let him uh, take the reins, and you know it was it was time. I think <laughs> he he was due. Let's put it that way. I thought he was due, and uh, to take the reins in that thing. So, uh, you know, I wanted the strong I wanted the strong uh, players to to end, and I think the 
you know, the Europeans, they, you know, they, their, their policy is to get the stronger players out first to get a lead. And, and, they, and they've been, they were very successful doing that. Always wanted to have the strongest or what I thought were the, the toughest competitors at the end. See, if, it, if the match came down to the end, uh, it would have the, you know, uh, yeah, it would, it would really have, you would have the gumption to be able to play and compete. The, um, your, your last seven matches, your team went 5-0-2. You guys, you talk about closing a Ryder Cup on the road. Your guys didn't lose any of the last seven matches. And, and Davis, it just so happened, you know, he was – he was he was kind of in the middle toward he was the seventh match out, but it wound up being the deciding one. How challenging is that as you're processing where guys are and and you know you're helpless. You're the you're the captain. You, you put them out there, they do the best they can. What do you remember most about the last 90 minutes of that Sunday? Well, I, I remember watching Costantino Roca three putt seventeen to allow uh uh, Davis back into the match. Uh, Davis is one down, and and Costantino Roca, you know, three putter for bogey at the 17th of par five, and it, uh, you know, it, it, yeah, it, that turned, you know, that turned that match right there, and Davis making the four or five footer in the last hole for par to win the match, uh, that put us, you know, and put us over the top. Uh, you know, that. Uh, uh, you know, that's why people watch the Ryder Cup right there. They want to see a close match. Uh, in 2014, it wasn't close. The, uh, the Europeans, uh, you know, the Europeans just kicked our butts. You know, they made, uh, you know, going over, they made like 50 to 60 more birdies than we did you know, throughout you know, the entire matches. Uh, we, just, we just got, uh, you know, <laughs> we just got cleaned. And we really did. We just, uh, you know, uh, our players, uh, you know, their players perform better than our players is the bottom line. And, you know, that's, um, you know, can a, can a captain inspire your players to make more birdies? No, it's up to them when they're on the golf course. And let me put it this way. There are certain players in the golf course, Gary, that go un- unnamed that get really overly nervous and can't play. They, you know, they have a real hard time playing under that pressure. Uh, the only way that uh, those players can play uh, effectively is to put them under that pressure under which they can't play and let them experience it so that they know how, and they, they can learn how to play under that pressure. Uh, and sometimes they, you know, they go in there and they, they have to lose first and then they get it. And they, and, they, and they know what to expect as far as the pressure is concerned. The Ryder Cup pressure is the most pressure that any player plays under, I believe. I know it happened. It was like that with me. And you have to experience that, and you have to uh, you have to learn to deal with that pressure. Uh, and it's it's the same for the other team as well. And how do you inspire? How do you? You know, I, I said as a captain, uh, try to keep you know try to keep the team room uh, loose, uh, joking things like that. Uh, you know. I, I'm not, not much of a jokester. You, know, you let the you, you let the players who uh, uh, can who do that naturally, you know, kind of run the team room. That's what you try to do as a captain, but you know, to reduce the pressure. But everybody's under that same pressure, 
once you get to the T, uh, the team room doesn't mean anything. It just means, okay, it's, it's time to start the match. I know <laughs> there was one player who got to the T in the alternate shot, and he was supposed to go first. He goes to his teammate and said, I can't tee off. Yes, you <laughs> You have to tee off here. And, uh, and that's what happened. So it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to see how different people react to the Ryder Cup pressure. Do you um, – I, I go back, and you've said this, of all the great victories you've had, being two down to Bob Devine after 19 holes in the Kansas City, in the Kansas City match play when you were 14 yeah. years old. Well, you were three down. Three, three down, down after 19. Okay. So you're 14. He's twice your age. And, and I bring this up because confrontation is something that a lot of people are not comfortable with. And match play is more than just the golf course. Your opponent, you, he's right there. He's right mm -hmm. there. And, and, and I think, and I, Ben Crenshaw is my guy, and I think his playoff record is indicative of somebody who just doesn't like confrontation. Were you comfortable with confrontation as a kid? Like in that match against Bob Devine, who's an adult, and you're a child, and you came back, and I think you beat him four and two. Were you comfortable in that environment? No. You're never comfortable in that environment. No. Okay. Uh, any player that you know, says when they're on the golf course with the, with when their chips are down, saying that they are comfortable, well, you learn to be comfortable under the under the pressure you're playing. Okay. Uh, but you have to experience it first to know what it feels like. How do you react to it? When I first was under a lot of pressure early in my career in the tour, it made me go faster. Made my, it made my swing get faster. My walk was faster. Uh, my decision-making process was faster. And finally, I, I, I was, you know, I, I kind of learned uh, from Byron and from Lanny Watkins. I said, you know, just walk a step slower. You know, just a pace. Just pace yourself just a step slower. Don't charge up there. I remember charging up the hill with, with, Johnny Miller at the Masters on the teeing off the first uh, first hole, and Johnny looking at me said, "I can't even feel this hill. I mean, it's it's, it's so light. My feet are so light. You know, it you, you tend to go too fast when you haven't played under pressure. You have to learn to you know to, to live within the within the framework of the pressure that, and that uh, uh, I learned to do that." And, you know, the Ryder Cup pressure is, is no different. It's greater, but you have to learn how to play under that pressure. So playing Bob Devine, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, was a kid, I was under pressure. Uh, you know, playing the last 18 holes, Bob didn't play very well, frankly. I think he shot like 78 or, you know, something like that. And I shot like 74 and won four and two. Uh, so I didn't go out there and run the tables and, and make a lot of birdies. Uh, he didn't, you know, he didn't. Uh, so that, that's match play for you. Uh, so, you know, that, you know, when you go out and play professional golf for a living, you learn how to, you know, you, there's a, there's a level of pressure. There's a low pre level. You have to not let your pressure get below that and make it too easy or make it where you just, uh, just you feel like I've got it. Like this, Byron Nelson always said he always played better golf when he was a little bit unsure of his golf swing. 
He said, when he had, went out and play, hit, had a perfect warm-up session, he said, that was dangerous for me. Mm. <laughs> He'd go out and make mistakes, careless mistakes. He says, well, I've got this. you got to be, you know, you got to really focus. Uh, and the upper level of that pressure, you learn, you basically learn that uh, you can deal in that level of pressure right in there. But there's always pressure there, Gary. I don't care who you are. You tee up in a golf tournament uh, in for, where the chips are down, there's a level of pressure under which you play. And, you know, it's like that in all sport. I, pro I promise you. Um, since we talked about Watson links earlier, and this is this is a more, you know, this is real life stuff. Two people who you are, you know, have real relationships with uh, John Feinstein, who is who wrote a book about Bruce um, and, and David Faraday. And I had both of them on when when David's book came out. And I remember, Tom, watching the episode of Faraday that you did uh, from from your property was it, it was you were sitting at a table and and you were talking about David's journey. And 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 I bring this up for a couple reasons, because I can just tell you when I was watching that, I was working at Golf Channel at the time. And for whatever reason, it penetrated me because I didn't know at that time whether whether alcohol had gotten a grip on me. And it did. And it did. And thankfully, I'm in recovery. But you said something to him sitting there that day, and it, it, I became conscious of it, almost to the point of being self-conscious of it. You said, I knew when I looked in your eyes that you were sick, that you were not well. And he said, how did you know? And you said, because it was like looking at myself. Um, having that conversation and the idea of, of, of helping someone who was really struggling, really struggling, his life was in jeopardy, truly, as somebody who is an alcoholic as I am. Um, people who talk about, like, there's paradoxes in life and the idea of you can't keep it unless you give it away. The sense of responsibility that you had that day, and I'm sure many other days, uh, just, if you don't mind just talking about that, having that conversation with him, which was very real. The one thing I did not know was that you had Nicholas waiting in the wings with the plane if, if, if David balked and said, I'm not going with you, uh, where I think it was back to Kansas City to, to, you know, to get the first stage of help. Um, just having that conversation. The uh, conversation was, was as you described. And uh, you know, my struggles with alcohol were, uh, I, I finally, uh, you know, was intervened and I, I took it and I wanted to get sober, uh, and, uh, going through the process of, of going through the program of AA and things like that, you learn, uh, you, you work the steps and you get to the 12th step, Gary, and the 12th step is, you know, when you, when you really get through the first 11 steps, you carry the message to other alcoholics uh, and you do it by not by promotion, but by attraction. And by saying those words is, you know, say, how did I know I was, you know, they say, how do you know I'm sick? I said, because I see the reflection of me in your eyes. And to tell them that told them that, you know, I, I understand where you are. And if you want, you know, if you want help, uh, you, know, you know, travel the road with me and, uh, you know, I'll show you the way. And then you take, you know, you take the reins 
and you do it yourself because only you can do it yourself. You can have people help you, but you have to make the decision uh, that your lives, your life has become unmanageable uh, through your abuse of alcohol or drugs. And you know that was the that's the message that I think that it, uh, it, that David got from me. And it, uh, you know, one of the things that you know, I go around the world. Uh, and I meet up with people who come up to me and said, I'm a friend of Bill. Yep. And people who don't know what that means in your period of watching this. Friend of Bill's, Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson basically wrote the book, the big book on uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's a, it's a, it's a secret message, basically. Yes. That said, I, you know, I, I, share, I share your life with my life. When you say I'm a friend of Bill, and you know it's uh, one of those things that uh, you know it's actually funny to say this, but uh, you're almost grateful that you were an alcoholic because it gives you it gives you the opportunity to really see inside your soul, see inside yourself, and become a better person, knowing and know how to knowing that you've hurt people, uh, make amends to those people, and you go through life uh, living. Uh, the tenth step, where you take you know, personal inventory every day, and say, you know, I'm trying to be the best flawed person I can be on a daily basis, because we all make mistakes. We should continue to make mistakes, but uh, we're better people because of that, Gary. Uh, I think, and uh, uh, the program works, but unfortunately, it doesn't work in great, you know, great percentages. People who get in the program uh, drop out of the program and and you know, return to their, their problems. Uh, so it's a never ending, uh, you know, never ending uh, road that we take to, to inspire, to attract people who have their problem. We open the door and say, you know, this is what I am. This is what I was, and this is what I am now. And you tell people, uh, you, know, you do it casually. Sometimes you know a person struggling with alcohol. You said, you know, this is, I remember when I was doing, you know, I, you know, I did this and I did that, you know, I got up in the morning really feeling bad. You know, I, I hurt somebody, uh, uh, yeah, and I did that, but now my life has changed and I, uh, you know, this is what I do now. And that's by attraction. Tom, thank you for sharing all that. I, I just can tell you that I wasn't ready. Uh, I wasn't ready when I saw that episode, but, and, and, you know, too many times, yeah. unfortunately with alcoholics is that there has but to be you, consequences and you it's remember that episode. absolutely. I do remember that. that. No, no question about it. It's well, the only, eventually you got help. Yes, I did. And it's, 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 it's the only self-diagnosed terminal disease. You have to be there. There's an acceptance that has to be there. Um, you can, you know, people can beg and plead because they're angry and scared uh, for you and for themselves. Um, you got to want it for yourself. And and I can just tell you that episode. I I I, I sat up and went. You know, I didn't say out loud. You know, God, I need help. But I, it was not forgotten. And thankfully, I, I eventually got it. Well, we both have we both have, have gone down the, the road uh, to sobriety, and you know we, we are better people because of it. You know, Gary, I I thank you for this uh, time to be able to speak. It's that's uh, 
I think uh, you know you speak of of this to uh, people who may be watching this. Say, you know, do I? Do I? Am I? Am I? And we hope that uh, uh, you know they they uh, they look at themselves deeply and they say, you know, if, if uh, a program is there if I want if I want it uh, to help me. So. No question. A couple things, and I'll get you out of here. There was there was a um, a terrific book, and I've loved all of Joe Posnanski's stuff. Um, But early early in his career, you you reached out to him because he was doing columns and he was making lists, um, and 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 you called him at the Kansas City Star, and you got him on the phone. You said, "Do you want to be great?" And that can be asked of anybody, no matter what they do. Why, what, do you remember why you called him? I mean, other than asking him that question, but I think you knew that he could be great. That's why you yeah. wanted to ask him if he wanted to be great. I just, I don't remember the phone call, honestly, Gary, but uh, I always was, uh, uh, I always thought he was a wonderful writer. Yes. And he, he really, uh, he really made the reader understand and, and participate in what he was writing about. And it's hard, it's, it's a hard chore may have a writer, you know, have, you know, column and column and column uh, to, and the different sports he wrote about. Uh, And you you read the columns that, you know, that that made me understand uh, and, and like what I like the sport or, you know, and that's why, you know, that's why we got along well. Okay, five quick questions to get you out of here. The a better ball partner, you can you can create a match. Who's your partner, and who are the two people you're playing, and where are you playing? It'd well, be- we're playing. Jack Nicholas and I were always partners in the Ryder Cup. We never lost. Uh, it's pretty good to go to the first tee <laughs> against your opponents, <laughs> and they come to the first tee and they see. Jack Nicholas there? Oh no, man! You know, like this. So Jack would be my partner. Um, Who do you want a you piece know, of? I want well, yeah, Sevy and uh, and and Faldo. That'd be great. Sevy and Faldo would be a piece of in the Ryder Cup. Where do, okay, where where do you want to play this match? You can play it anywhere. Well, yeah, I think we yeah, we love to play it near field. Near field Oh gosh. That's where we- Okay. All right. A sporting event you've never attended that you'd like to? World Cup. Soccer. Excellent one. It's the best biography you've ever read? The, um, well, actually, I just read uh, John Feinstein's book on uh, uh, David, uh, David Faraday. Yeah. He's a close friend. There were things in there that I didn't know about my friend. And... Uh, and so yeah, that's a recent biography. You know, uh, Truman, uh, geez, you know, you know, you go all the way back. You know, John Adams. Yes. Uh, you know, there were these, you know, you know, the Revolutionary War, George Washington. Uh, you go back there. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the several Lincoln, Lincoln uh, you know, books that came out uh, that. Uh, well, the recent uh, one John Meacham wrote is excellent. Uh, John's written some great biographies. He, the, the one he wrote about Bush 41, Destiny and Power, that's a terrific book uh, mm-hmm. as well. Now, did, that book, the, the David book is very revealing, very, I mean, the vulnerability he shared was, was 
very powerful. All right, I, I don't know. This is interesting for me. The last time you threw a club. Wow. <laughs> I remember the best time I threw the club. <laughs> I was a kid playing by myself, and I, had a, and I hit a three-iron lousy. I threw the club, and it got stuck in a tree. <laughs> now, here I am throwing more clubs up like this, trying to get that thing stuck out of the tree. <laughs> and I finally got it down. And my dad would have been really pissed at me if, if he knew about that. I told him the story, but later on, I also told him the story when I, I, I bent or broke the shaft when I threw a club. And uh, I didn't tell him the story. He found out about it. I said, all right, son, that's 10 bucks. Wow. Yeah, and 10 I, bucks, a lot of money back then. Oh, to my gosh. Absolutely. All right, last question for Tom Watson. The thing you're most grateful for. Oh, God. Yeah, the loved ones, the people in my life. Uh, and it, it expands uh, from childhood to now. I mean, that's, I'm more grateful, I'm more, most grateful for the relationships, the loving relationships that I have with people. Tom, enjoy the air show with the grandkids this weekend. Um, Thanks, I'm Gary. glad you're feeling better. Um, and thank you so much for indulging me and, and giving all this time. Okay. All right, Gary, you take care. Thank you. Cheers. Well, really appreciate Tom Watson taking that time. Uh, it's interesting when I said, if you were watching this, you saw it. But if you're just listening, when I said the name Bob Devine, this wry grin came over his face like, yeah, I got that guy. When he was 14, beating a guy twice his age in the Kansas City match play. It's a hell of a life. Obviously, one of the great careers of all time. I appreciate him, but appreciate all of you out there for listening and watching. This Five Clubs conversation, we'll see you next week.